Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about escape room games. We're talking about these crazy games with crazy components where you get your friends around the table and you figure them out. It takes about an hour and you live or die. We're talking to Juliana Patel and Ariel Rubin, a couple ladies who have made an incredible, just amazing, the number one escape room game on Board Game Geek right now, which is incredible, uh, Escape Room in a Box, The Werewolf Experiment. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank Thanks you so much for having us. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. You guys are, are BGDL listeners, which is awesome. So it's kind of cool to you know you listen to the show. Now you're on the show. Really appreciate you listening and, and appreciate your time here today. Yeah, we love the show. I've been playing uh, Scythe every night ever since I listened to the episode. <laughs> That's awesome. It's it's one of the best games in the world, and so uh, I love Jamie Stegmaier is one of my favorite people in in all of board gaming, and so anytime I get to have him he on the show, such an amazing human being. Uh, like right? I am continually blown away by everything that he does for the community, and then his games are fantastic too. I know he does it all. It's incredible. Uh, but you guys, let's talk about your game. Um, in, well, in just a second, we'll get your bio and say, but uh, you guys made $135,000 on Kickstarter, right? With your first ever game, which is incredible, this escape room game. Now your game is picked up. It's been licensed by Mattel to go in. I guess it's going to be in stores everywhere, right? Yeah. That's uh, the, the pre-sale page is up on Amazon right now, and you will be able to buy it in time for the holidays. Yeah. So this is not just some like little print and play idea you guys have had. This is like a legit awesome thing and i am i'm pumped because i don't know much about escape room games i was telling you before i have yet to be able to play one and so i don't know what i know i know about it like i have the general idea but no clue as far as like what goes into making one how to make this thing fun and so this is a i am a clean slate and i am excited to learn (laughs) from you guys today so but but first give me your background tell me your bio how did you guys meet and how did you get into game design Well, we met because uh, we have a mutual friend named Jason who uh, decided that we were the two most competitive women that he knew. So we like should meet each other, Um, which, you know, could have gone really, really terribly, especially because we started out at a game night. Uh, That's (laughs) when he introduced us at a werewolf game night. And but we became really good friends. And then Juliana, you know, was getting into escape rooms. This is early 2014 when escape rooms first came to the states and she eventually allowed me onto her escape room team she had to work her way up to the a team she you know she was a newer friend i wasn't quite sure so she started out on the b team but anytime an a team member was not available have Ariel come and she she earned her permanent slot there and now she is the number one person i do escape rooms with there you go so the progression because well you don't want to take somebody who's going to get you killed in the escape exactly. room or lose it's for everybody really, else. It's important to put together a good team and not just like smart people, but people who have different skill sets. Like anytime we go in an escape room, if there's any sort of writing or diary or logic puzzles, or else just like, oh, here you go. And if there's any sort <laughs> of true. like, I just yeah. throw it at Juliana. Like, this is nonsense. Uh, if there's any sort of like gear or mechanical puzzle, I'm like, this is definitely not for me. <laughs> and, like, pass it off. So you, you just have to have the right team together. But you can hear that Juliana is so competitive that even in a cooperative gaming environment, she managed to make it competitive and not allow everyone in. <laughs> All right, so you guys, go ahead. Our team is cooperative, but we are. There's always they post the records at all of these locations, so you know you want to make sure you have the best cooperative team. Right, and if you're going to do anything, you might as well be the best at it. Exactly, it's true. Definitely. Okay, so y'all y'all started, you know, going to the escape room. How many are there in Los Angeles, by the way? I think it's somewhere between 160 and 200 at this point. And that's just companies. Mm -hmm. And then like each company has like two or three different rooms. Um, So there's a massive amount. And I realize we should say for any of your listeners who don't actually know what escape rooms are, they are rooms, generally they're brick and mortar rooms that you go and you get locked into the room. You have to find a bunch of hidden objects, solve a series of puzzles, put every all the clues together, and your goal is generally to escape from the room in under an hour. And then now there's a trend of at-home versions. Yeah, it's basically turn the Da Vinci Code into an hour experience 
kind of thing. Like figure out the different puzzles and you're trying to, yeah, trying to get out. Go ahead. I was gonna, well, there's a lot of Da Vinci rooms, in fact. And yeah. when we started playing in L.A., I don't know, there were probably only 50 rooms or I mean, less. Less than that, yeah. This is a really exploding worldwide trend. I mean, it's just been crazy. They're just popping up everywhere. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think the growth rate was like over a thousand percent between 2015 and 2016. It's wow. exploding. And crazy. Uh, and I want to talk about that a little bit more in a second. But first, tell me how how you guys started designing games. Like, what? Okay, so you're going and you know having fun playing games. But what flipped the switch and said, you know what, we need to design one of these. So we loved playing these games. This was the early days, and they were always in kind of sketchy neighborhoods because that's where they could afford to be. And we're both moms. And so to go out, you know, you'd have to get a babysitter or coordinate childcare. And I did have these regular werewolf game nights, as Ariel mentioned, where we met. So we thought it would be super fun if we could do an escape room at home. Like they used to have the murder mystery dinner theater things that you could do at home. We wanted to do an escape room at home. So we looked and looked and it was not available anywhere online. There was nothing like it at the time. Um, and we figured, you know what? We're super passionate about escape rooms. We're super passionate about games. Let's put them together. So it's kind of like necessity is the mother of all invention. And so like you, you needed it and it didn't exist. Oh, I guess so I'll have to create it, which is really cool. That's where a lot of you know creative activities start. You know, a, a guy wants to read a book that doesn't exist, so he writes it. Or somebody wants to play a game and it doesn't exist, so they make it. But how did that, because again, you're not really like basing this off anything else. Like this is you're having to come up with this kind of for the first time. And so like walk me through that process. Like what did that that look like? You just sat down and just started trying to to pull the big experience of the, you know, the actual brick and mortar store and turn it into, you know, something that can go in a box. But how like walk me through your process of really figuring that out. I can tell you the first moment. I remember this very clearly because um Juliana was pushing my son in the swing. And I think your son was running around and I had a pad of paper. And so as she was pushing, I was like, okay, so what are our favorite puzzles that we've done? Mm-hmm. You know, we should make it first thing we should do is come up with a list of our favorite puzzles, you know, yeah. what, what we could put into this box. And, um, this is maybe jumping ahead a couple steps, but I think it is interesting. We were escape room enthusiasts who wanted to create a tabletop game. So we came from a place of what do we love in escape rooms? Well, we love unlocking locks and we love searching and we personally love black lights. I think they're always magical. Um, and I think that the, this is what separates our game from the others on the market because the other games on the market are really fun and they're, they have great puzzling in them. They're made by people who started as game designers and really good game designers. But our game was very difficult to manufacture, but it does include... Um, it includes locks and boxes and real elements where the other games are primarily paper. Right. Cards or so something you said, like that. You know, there, there couldn't even be a print and play version of ours unless you had, I guess, unless you had a 3D printer, but then you'd have to put the locks on yourself and you wouldn't get to play it. Yeah, I think we definitely always wanted to make sure that it was a physical experience and that it has the surprising moments. I remember that was one thing my friend said after he played. He's like, you don't generally expect to get surprised by, by a board game, but ours actually has like moments of like, did not see that coming at all. Or uh, one play to swear guy in this particular moment literally fell off the back of a bench and like <laughs> skittered backwards. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. It's been really great to see. Yeah. Um, right. And so you, you bring up a great point. Is there's a big difference between being an escape roomer or do you have like a, a, a title? Is there a name for people that love escape rooms? Enthusi- an escape room enthusiast. An escape is kind room of enthusiast is very like much more proper yeah. than a rumor. Uh, <laughs> although, <laughs> anyway, and so as an enthusiast creating a game, that is very, very different than a game designer creating a game. Like it's you're coming from totally different angles. But let's tell me like what what is it about escape rooms that that y'all just love? Like going like you going over and over and over again. What keeps bringing you back? Like what is it? And then let's kind of talk about how that transitions into an actual board game. Sure. I think a lot of what really draws people and especially in this current moment to escape rooms 
is the immersion into a different world. Like you get to go and actually be the star of the movie instead of watching it on the screen. You're in that wizard's workshop and you actually get to mix together the potions and it matters what you do. It matters if you do it correctly or not. There are consequences. And so I think certainly, you know, for me as a as a mom, I if I go to the movies or I go out to dinner, I'll enjoy it. Absolutely. But I still have in the back of my mind, like, oh, what do I need to do tomorrow? When am I going to pack the kids? For? Like everything mm-hmm. kind of nonstop. Whereas in an escape room, it is an hour. That is all the time you have. And there's a lot that you have to do in that hour. So having something that absolutely draws all my focus and lets me feel like productive and accomplished just in the span of that hour uh, that was an amazing thing that I absolutely loved. I used to say it was my meditation. Like that's where I can be present in the present moment is in an escape room. And in general, your cell phone isn't allowed to even be there with you. Mm-hmm. So you can't check your text. You don't, you know, you can't check Facebook or whatever. You really have to, you know, be there with your friends, no screens in the moment. So that's, I mean, that's awesome. I think there's, there is a move towards, uh, I think, and I think the tabletop, you know, comeback is because there's a move towards spending, you know, in real life time with other people and in activities. Yeah. So you just, you don't have any distractions. Like you have one thing you're trying to do, which is escape this room and everything else, everything else in your life in the world outside just kind of fades away, which is a really cool thing. And I think, again, like kind of what you were just saying, going towards the board game boom that we're in right now, I think that's what people are, are coming back to. That's saying we're spending too much time on our phones, too much time in front of screens, disconnecting from real people. Let's find a way to connect with re- real people. But how do, you, how do you take that experience? And let's maybe even talk about some specifics and what like specifically you love. You, you talked about you know, writing things or diary things, engineering things. Like how do you take that experience and those types of components and turn that into a board game that can go into a box as opposed to into a building. So we started out knowing that, okay, we can't say like, oh, you're locked in your living room. Just <laughs> pretend the door's locked. It's okay. So we we created a narrative that it, with the werewolf experiment where this you know evil mad scientist, Dr. Cynthia Naw, has sent you this box. And when you open it up, it releases a poisonous vapor that you can't see or hear or taste or any of that. And it's going to turn you into a werewolf unless you can get the antidote. And of course, an evil mad scientist has her antidote locked away so that you know we started with a narrative that's going to allow us to okay we're trying to break into something instead of breaking out of a room right that makes a whole lot of sense Ariel. as far as like what you love about escape rooms how did you like what were when you were coming into the design space and saying okay i really want to take this element and put it in a box what were some of those elements locks were really important to me i really wanted you know i didn't want to just solve a puzzle and be told I was then allowed into something. I wanted to not be able to get into it unless I solved the puzzle, Mm -hmm. unless I solved the puzzle. So actually having to unlock locks, um, jumps, scares or surprises were important. And there are some, um, and the aha moments, the moments where even people who aren't great at puzzles are like, Oh, and we have some nostalgia puzzles and werewolf experiment. Like, oh, I know how to do this. And then they figure out the answer or maybe they're stuck for a minute, but then they figure it out. And it just like they have this moment where it's like, oh, my gosh, I got it. I got it. And that's that's wonderful. And I love that feeling when I'm in a room. Um, So it's wonderful to see other people have that because you made an interesting point earlier, which is that you create a game because you want to play it, which is what we did. But we don't get to play our own game. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So you need more people Uh, to kind of pick up the torch and and make some more of these. That's this is why, why we're, we're so happy that there yeah. are so many other escape room games yeah. on the market and why we play them all is because we want to be playing these games yeah. and we can't play our own. Definitely. And I'd say, too, a wide variety of puzzles yes. was really important to us. Like, I think it is very cool to have an experience where each member of the team kind of gets their moment to shine. And we loved seeing it a lot of times in playtesting. There would be someone who was like, okay, guys, like, I'm not very good at puzzles, but, you know, I'll, I'll help where I can. And then they would have their, like, rock star moment where I was like, oh, yes, I'm so glad you know how to do that. Um, and we think that's a really excellent moment to have. Definitely. One, one thing, talking about moments, I love in what you're describing is this moment of truth 
that is more, it's more tangible. It's not, okay, I'm going to choose this little decision and then I have to turn to the certain page in the adventure book and find out, am I successful or did I die? No, it's, it's not turning a page. It's literally, does the lock open? That kind of, it's this real like tangible moment of truth. Like, yes, we succeeded or no, the, uh, the gas just killed us all. And, but it's, it's a little yeah. more real than flipping a card. Became a werewolf. Yeah. We're all werewolves now, which, you know, some people might think that's a good thing. They might not want to win. Um, but this, these kind of games create this real, these really cool, like actual moments as opposed to kind of more in the imagination. It's not like flipping a card or turning to a certain page. It's, it's, it's real. Like this lock, this is a real lock and it did just actually open. And I think that's a really cool thing that you guys have put together. And I will say too, the Mattel version, um, our version, we had some issues with the logs and having them survive transportation. And we can get into what manufacturing this game was as well, if you're interested. But the Mattel version, the locks that they have spring open in such a satisfying way. I love it. Yeah, that's really cool. And let's let's talk about that. The next thing on my list was to talk about the challenges in creating a game like this. So let's talk about some of those as far as manufacturing and other challenges. Sure. So, I mean, our game, I think we had 34 individual components. So, like, a piece of paper would be one component, even if it covers, you know, 10 different pieces of paper, it counts as one. So, most games are, you know, a board and cards and dice and maybe, you know, minis or meeples or something like that. Our game had so many things that all had to go into it and all had to be put together in a very specific way you know if you get most other games and a card is missing you just say oh this card's missing they send you a replacement and it's not the end of the world for us you're you know 45 minutes into it you're thinking you're going to escape and then you just get stuck and can't figure anything out and you finally look and see and you're like oh it's because we didn't have this thing like that Mm -hmm. would be a terrible moment so we worked crazy hard on quality control to try to make sure everything was put together perfectly and had to be you know triple and quadruple checked and you know random spot checks everywhere and we had a problem with the locks where they were getting messed up in transit where even if you did have the right combination they still weren't opening so then we had to resource the locks which caused a delay in our kickstarter which we were like heart we we know all kickstarters are late but we were like no we're gonna be on time but then the locks weren't working and it was like oh god these physical elements are killing us um But at the end of the day, I mean, we wouldn't have it any other way. But we did when we originally like we went to Panda, which is one of the, you know, very big manufacturers. And and they basically said no. (laughs) They said they did say no. (laughs) Too complicated. This is too many source materials. Like we are not going to make this game. Um, And same thing. We tried to manufacture originally. We were like, oh, we want to manufacture in the U.S. And we talked to U.S. factories and they were like, uh, no, this is, uh, everything is going to have to be sourced from China. Like mm-hmm. there's no way that we can make this game because of all the parts, you know, the Petri dishes and the test tubes and the tins and the locks and everything. So we eventually ended up finding a toy manufacturer, not, not Mattel, a, like a, literally a company that manufactures, uh, whatever people hire them to manufacture, but they came from a place of like, oh, okay, you want to source 34 different items from 34 different factories and then put them all together? We can handle that. Um, And so we worked with them. They're called the Product Greenhouse. Uh, And we made the first 3,000 editions of the game, the first edition, um, and sent that to all our Kickstarter backers and pre-orders. And then the Mattel version of the game will be coming out uh, next month. Gotcha. Now, Aria, what were some of the biggest challenges that, that you you thought were like the big ones, biggest ones? I mean, manufacturing was huge, and luckily Juliana did most of it. Um, <laughs> that's why you have a co-designer. That's that's the reason. There you yeah. go. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm more the like Photoshop girl, mm-hmm. and Juliana does all the database stuff, which is really great. Mm-hmm. I got uh, really lucky because we didn't like discuss in advance when we decided to, we were just like, of course we should make this game. But we do have very distinct skill sets that mm-hmm. complement each other very well. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, what, what were the big, I mean, manufacturing was definitely the biggest challenge. It took us away from designing for a year. Um, and that was terrible. And I never want to manufacture anything again, <laughs> if I can help it. Right. Um, right. Which is why I'm so happy about Mattel because now we have the freedom to get back to the creative and get back to designing. It was just, 
you know, even though Juliana was doing a lot of the sourcing in the database, of course, you know, we were both dealing with issues as they came up. We've been dealing with customer service issues now that we sent out the Kickstarter. Um, I'm sure you've heard about this from other Kickstarter people, but, you know, boxes get damaged in transit or some little thing is wrong and it's like, well, what do we do to make it right with that customer? And some people you can't even, you just can't make it right with. I right. mean, most of our backers are awesome um, and have been very nice about it, but some people you can't please, um, which is, you know, we try really hard. Um, so just all of that is not what's fun to me. Yeah. And we do not like, we never wanted to become a publisher uh, this and in fact, originally we were going to make these games in my garage because mm -hmm. we thought we'd only sell like 200. Yeah. And then you sold 2,300. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we couldn't make them in our garage anymore. Like that was, my husband um, did a lot of the work and uh, originally for the prototypes and was like drilling holes and tins. And, he's, and he was like, no, when yeah. we hit a thousand, he was like, no, I'm not, <laughs> you guys have to figure out something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And what was, you know, this is a, this brings up a point I've, I've talked about on the show before. If you are a designer then be a designer. Like, don't feel like you have to also be a publisher and do all the logistics and art, all these different things. Like, find what you're the best at and do that. But what was so difficult for what you guys were doing, this didn't, it didn't exist at the time. It wasn't like, oh, there's these publishers that, that, that print uh, escape room games. No, like, it wasn't really a thing. And so you kind of did what you had to do. But I'm excited now that Mattel is, is you know, they're, they're doing all the hard part. They're dealing with customers and they're dealing with all the, the lock manufacturers and the resources and all that stuff. So you guys can just design. And so are you already working on the, the next couple versions of the game? Uh, I think we what are. I say yeah. is we are working on the next version of the game, the next, <laughs> it, the sequel. Is it a sequel? I don't know. We're working on another Escape Room in a Box, which is going to be amazing. It's so cool. Yeah. Um, and we certainly have ideas for many more in the series. Right, because the first one's the werewolf, so now you got to do Dracula or a zombie or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Um, I want to say, too, in terms of, like, that, you know, there was no publisher to approach. I really, at the end of the day, think that was a huge asset for us. Because as we've come into this world and we actually have met some of the other designers of some of the other tabletop escape room games, and they've said to us, like, ah, oh, what you guys did is what we wanted to do. Like, right. getting to have those cool physical components and those awesome physical moments, that's what people we're looking for but in the you know more traditional world they're like oh, I don't know let's just go with what we know and do kind of the paper base and then getting to have this kind of independent Kickstarter showing how much of an audience there was for it you know um, we were taking pre-orders at $60 a box and the Mattel version of the game is going to be $29 a box um, so I think proving to them like people are really ready for this sort of game and they will invest a, a bit more in order to have that physical experience. Um, you know, we were able to then take those numbers and show them to Mattel and have, have the game come out. Yeah, it's a great point. You didn't have to deal with the constraints that a designer that, you know, was working with a, an established publisher would have to deal with where the publisher says, Hey, this has to be $8 per period. Like you can't go over $8. That's all we can you know, spend per copy of this game. Good luck. Which makes sense exactly. why, you know, the games are mostly <laughs> cards or mostly cardboard because that's the, sure. you know, the price points that they're, that they're dealing with. And so let's talk about the advantages of this kind of a game, right? So we've talked a little bit about, you know, why other games are different because they are cards and all that. What are the other advantages? And let's think more about people, right? Not, not so much about components, but just kind of the, this type of game, the advantage as opposed to Scythe or as opposed to, you know, a 20 minute filler game or something like that. Why would people play this game? Like what advantage does your game have over all the other games on the market? Yeah, I think ours is an experience yeah. game. Like we really strive for this is going to be a very special experience. We have a whole party planner that comes with it. So if you want to make like decorate your house like a mad scientist laboratory and have, you know, themed food and drinks. So we really, you know, we both have a theater background. Um, so I think that plays into how we view this game as well. Like that this is going to be a night where you guys are trying to experience, you know, escape. And then afterwards, one thing we love about making it a tabletop game is that when you go to a typical escape room, 
you know, they've booked you for the hour and then they have another group coming in. So they have to reset. So they kick you right out and you have to go find somewhere else to be. Whereas with ours, you can sit there afterwards and be like, okay, so you solved that. I didn't even see that. What was happening over there? What was this puzzle? How did that go? And having the chance to really sit there with your friends and talk through the moments that you guys all had together. Um, I think that's, I would say the biggest difference. Yeah. Well, and also if you don't escape, you like, if you're like, I know we're almost done, you can keep going. If you're in a brick and mortar escape room, they kick you out. I mean, right. mo- unless they, most places are pretty nice. And if they don't have another group book, they'll let you finish. But it's, they're running a business and they right. have people waiting in the lobby and you got to move on. Um, but for our game, you have it at home and you can keep playing. In terms of the difference with other tabletop games, I think our game, it's, it's a very different experience. A game like Scythe, I've been playing the different boards to like learn what my strategy should be for the future, right? Um, it's a real thinking game. There's a huge rule book I, that I'm looking at all the time, a very well done rule book, as you guys talked about in uh, the bonus section. But with our game, I think, what is there, 10, uh, 10 rules? Oh, wow. oh, if that. I think it's, it's like six rules and six tips. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I should know this, um, but it all fits on one piece of paper. Yeah. And it's not even, you know, it's an at least 14 point type. Like it's. Yeah, our it's, original box was seven by seven. So it fits on a seven by seven sheet of paper. Wow. Um, and it's pretty much don't be stupid and destroy the game. It's like <laughs> what the rules come down to. Don't look at your phone. You know, don't put paper in water because then you won't get to replay it. Um, and don't guess on things. That's what always surprises me too. Like you paid this money for the experience of solving puzzles. And I literally saw. You know, I've seen groups where one person is like, guys, there's only three numbers on here. There's only 999 possible (laughs) combinations. And it's like, is that the experience that you want to sit for an hour flipping tumblers on a lock? Is that what James Bond does? He just sits there and goes over, you know? Um, But yeah, so I think for ours, you know, it's a very, you know, easy point of entry. If you have a group of people who, maybe aren't into the really heavy games, but you want to, you know, do a board game night or you want to do a party with your friends who aren't as, you know, into gaming, this is a great game for that um, because it's a, it's an experience. It's this one-time event. You guys are going to have this really special um, experience together and it's not that hard to get into. And any pretty much anyone can do it. We had a seven-year-old play and she loved it. Yeah. You had to play, she had to play with her family, but she had puzzles that she solved that no one else, you know, got. That she was better at, yeah, than, yeah. than others. Um, and, you know, we get a lot, people talk to us a lot about the replayable element. And, te- you know, depends on how good your memory is. If you're very good memory, you can't replay. We've, we've now had people who have replayed after a year, and that's very doable, as we've learned. People don't tend to remember puzzles after a year. But we also include a script where you can, you know, take on the character of Dr. Knopf and lead your friends through the game. And that's really fun also. Yeah, so you have- get to take over certain elements of the game. And because you're setting it up in your home, you can, you know, there's a, an additional bonus puzzle that's kind of within the home since you're hosting it. So it's very fun. I would say it's more of an interactive immersion, like experience than a tabletop, a, your typical tabletop game where you're playing a game. Right. And I love the idea of making it an event. Like you're going to invite a bunch of friends over and this is what you're going to do. And so you have themed food and you have some stuff, you know, some decorations, throw some interesting music on in the background, whatever. And you make like, this is what we're going to do tonight. It's just a really cool We have a soundtrack, actually. Uh, Uh, The Mattel game is going to be integrated with Alexa uh, in our first edition as well. We partnered with an app called Escape Room Passport, um, which is also just a great app for keeping track of what escape rooms you're playing and getting stamps. But so uh, for our game with the app and uh, for the Mattel game with Alexa, uh, or you can just go to the website and download and you have the full soundtrack and then you also hear Doc Nall's assistant kind of goading you on and keeping time for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Also, I love how, you know, escape rooms in general, they, they appeal to me. Like, I think it'd be cool to go and, you know, experience one at the brick and mortar. 
But I really feel a lot more excited about doing it at my house where I could use my own bathroom and I can eat my own chips. And, you know, and like it just seems like more of a comfortable situation and, and just invite people over to the house and let's have some fun. And I don't have to get a babysitter for my kids. I can just lock them in their room. And it, that becomes their own escape room, their own room. And so, exactly. <laughs> it's just a really cool thing. And I think we're touching on something. I actually just talked to Matt Leacock, uh, designer of Pandemic, yesterday as a recording. We're recording this today. I talked to him yesterday for a show that's we about to come Pandemic. out. We love Pandemic. We just got the second one. We're so excited. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> second but, legacy, yeah. But yeah, what we legacy. talked about was cra- uh, crafting the player experience, like realizing that you're not just making a game. Uh, you're making this this experience that people are gonna gonna go through. And when you when you play Pandemic Legacy, like it's obvious they put that experience together and they created a story and all these things. But I feel like that's kind of the the uh, where we're getting into now with games is like okay, you can create. Uh, an 18 card micro game and that's fun and you have five ten minutes of play and that's that's cool but then you can also create these giant epic experiences and people want to play those too and even if it's just a one shot you know pandemic legacy you're going to go through one time and you're going to have to buy another copy if you want to do it again like your your game you know once you play it it is replayable to a point but at the same time it's you're not going to have the same experience as you did that first time but there's still a huge market for it. And I think that's something that's important for designers to realize. You can design games that are one-offs. Time Stories is hugely successful right now. And it's a one and done. You play that scenario one time and now you know the secrets. Now you know how to do it. You're probably not going to do it again. And if you do, you're going to do it and you're not going to, you're going you're to play with a different group and not tell your friends the secrets. Like I've done that. I've played <laughs> it and I'm like, I'm not going to say anything because I know the answer. I want you guys to figure it out. But it's not the same. But there's still yeah. a market for that. And that's a really cool space that we're kind of going into in the, the industry. direction. Yeah. That we're moving in the, you know, all studies show and everything millennials and younger generation is far more interested in experiences yep. than they are in tangible goods. Mm-hmm. And so I think as game designers, that's definitely something to be aware of is people are looking for these experiences and there's so much content in movies and the eight and billion channels with the internet TV and everything else. And so people are used to having these stories told to them. And if a game is going to allow them to actually be a part of a story and play a really amazing role in that story, that's what people are looking for. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at, you know, social media, like you're just saying, Snapchat has a story feature. I think Facebook now has a story feature. Like story is just, it's a big deal. And it's almost something like God given, like almost just how we're wired, like maybe how we're created where story is just, it just matters. Like there's something about story that draws people in. Anytime you're listening to somebody speak, they can give you all the numbers and all the graphics in the world, but you're going to remember the stories that they told. And so it's just an interesting way to come at game design An angle to come at uh, designing games is realizing that your game's going to tell a story no matter what. And even if you've got like a really dry Euro, there's going to be some kind of uh, emergent narrative that comes out of that game. And just embracing that, don't, don't push it, you know, really just uh, don't push it away. Just push it forward. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, let's talk about your playtesting process because a game like <laughs> this had to be very difficult to playtest. So how in the world did you do it? Well, first of all, we needed a lot of playtesters because right. people could really only playtest once. Mm-hmm. Um, we started with our friends, and I think our first playtest took like three hours. Oh, sorry. That's my newborn. Um, <laughs> because our game was way too hard. Um, because, you know, you start coming up with puzzles that make sense to you, mm-hmm. and it turns out they don't make sense to anyone else. And also people hate logic puzzles. Mm-hmm. Which is so sad because we <laughs> love them. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, the first thing we worked on was really, and I think you talked, you were saying this, creating a user experience, realizing that people don't necessarily want a super tough puzzle. They want a really satisfying puzzle. And, you know, we started to learn what that meant through playtesting. And one rule that we had for all of our friends was, you know, we definitely want you to play test your game, but you have to bring a group of people we don't know to mm. play test it. So rather than just have, you know, our groups of friends like play all together in a group, we made them bring their other friends so that we could kind of spread all of our friends out. And then we just sat there and watched and you see when people stop having fun. Like we had a questionnaire and obviously we would talk to everyone after and we'd have them fill out questionnaires about the experience of the game. But it was the most valuable thing I think was just actually watching and seeing like, 
okay, they're, they're at an hour and 15 minutes and it doesn't matter what comes next, what puzzle comes next, they're not having any fun anymore. Like we need to find a way to, you know, always keep it entertaining. Yeah. But I really like the idea of, of you basically delegating finding playtest groups to your friends. It's like, we want you to playtest this. Oh, by the way, you got to bring five other people. Like you get to delegate well, it that out. it started that way. And then we actually went out and we poached. We were like, okay, we need to find other escape room people. Like the, that's our audience. That's mm-hmm. who's going to buy this game is right. escape room enthusiasts. And I mean, we posted on BGG and got like no one. <laughs> um, so we, uh, we tried like looking in escape room groups, didn't have much luck there. So finally we went to a puzzling event. There's a great event actually that's nationwide. If you're into puzzles, it's called Puzzled Pint. And it's the first Tuesday or second Tuesday. I think it's second Tuesday of every month. And you go on the website, puzzledpint.com. And you have to solve a puzzle to actually get the location of where it will be. Um, And then you can go and uh, they give you a series of puzzles at a bar. And it's fantastic. Um, So we went there and we were like, hey, do you guys like puzzles and games? Do you guys want to play a game? And so we got all their information. And all those people came through. I was shocked. Like, you know, it's it's Los Angeles. People are notoriously flaky. Um, But yeah, everyone was like, absolutely. We would love to. Like, let's play this game. (laughs) And then we we went to uh, what? We went to a a convention, a scare convention. And we got a bunch of people from there too. Because I think it was important for us to not just play tests. And we discussed this a lot. We didn't want to just play test with people who are really good at puzzles. We wanted to play test with people who like, Maybe thought the idea of an escape room sounded fun, but maybe weren't the best or the most into puzzles uh, because we wanted the game to be fun for everybody. Yeah. Well, how do you find that good balance between a really difficult puzzle, but then also something that's going to be appealing to a lot of people? Because that's a hard place. Like, how did you guys balance the game, so to speak? I think we, first of all, we ended up making it a lot easier. But and there are and there are some mechanics within the game where it gives you some some extras to help you out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know I, one thing that you talked about on a previous episode was if like one person has a problem in a playtest and then you know when you send out the game that it's just going to multiply. Mm-hmm. For us, every single group we've ever seen play the game has played it totally differently. Yeah. So for for us, it's a rule. It like at least three groups need to have a problem with something before we're going to change it Hmm. because we've play tested this game so much and everyone has played it differently so if just one group has a problem it might not be worth changing if everyone else is fine with it because people it's just it's such a different type of game and people you know will do one puzzle at a different time like after a different puzzle than they did before which will change their experience it's or, you know, doing it in different places will affect the experience. There's so many things. Yeah. I don't know if that was as clear as no, I No, it makes it a lot be. of sense because you're dealing with logic. You're not necessarily dealing with, okay, this card is a little bit overpowered, so I need to, you know, change it a little bit. Like, that's, that's not what you're dealing with. How many playtests, like, the, what was the number of playtests do you think you did? We totally thought, oh, should have recorded. We're first-time designers, <laughs> and we didn't realize we ought to be, like, keeping track. Uh-huh. But it's hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. We just didn't keep track. Next time we're going to keep track. Right. Now, how do you fit this game into an hour? I feel like that would be one of the most difficult things is really fitting it into that. If you say it's going to take an hour, then it actually does. I mean, there's a lot of games that lie and say, hey, this is a 60-minute game. And then like two hours later, you're like, these game designers are liars. But like, how did you really fit this thing into the box and it really be a 60-minute game? I mean, it does vary from experience to experience. If you get a ton of people who, you know, if it's a big group and they've done a ton of escape rooms and they're excellent at puzzles, their time will be faster. And if it's, you know, a group's first time really dealing with puzzles and this sort of game, their time would be a lot longer. And it does depend a lot on the size of the group as well. So I think we, uh, I would say, I think it's like 80, 85% of our players fall within 50 to an hour 10 so that's what we were going for um but it really it varies so vastly depending on the group because it is about solving the puzzles and i will say too our game has a lot to do Mm -hmm. we say two to eight players on the box 
Um, but if you just have two people, it's probably going to take you longer because there's a lot of different puzzles in different places that all need, you know, people to be working on them. Yeah. Now, when you first started, when you, you know, the initial prototypes, were they longer and then you kind of had to whittle some things down? Like what was, what was that process like? Yeah. So, uh, as Ariel mentioned, our initial play test, which just went way, way too long with us giving lots of hints and, uh, it was so hard. So we took some puzzles out, we changed puzzles. Um, and then we also did a lot of things, um, to kind of streamline the experience, things that people might not actually recognize when they play, but like, all of the borders on the puzzle pages are one color and the borders on the answer pages are another color. And it helps to set them apart in a way that, you know, we originally had people looking at the answers, trying to figure out where the puzzle was and how they could solve it. And it's like, no, that's just the answer sheet. Like just write your answers on there. Um, so that's been an interesting process too, is kind of seeing the psychology of what we can do to make things better for players. Yeah. Well, do you have any like tips or tricks? You know, if somebody is wanting to make one of these games on their own, they're overwhelmed by the possibilities of playtesting. How do you do this? Any tips or tricks, you know, things that maybe you didn't do so well that you're going to do better in the future, anything like that? I mean, one thing I think just everyone needs to massively playtest their game. I think as long as you have done a massive amount of playtesting on an escape room game and you've gotten it to the point where most groups, you know, are going through in a way that you're happy with, that is going to be, that's it. Because we play escape rooms all the time and we're like, there's no way they play tested this and it got through. Like this logical leap where they think because, you know, there's a red square in the corner of one thing and you're supposed to put it together with a, you know, a red cube somewhere else in the room. Like no one's going to make this connection. And so I think as long as you just really tune in to what, you know, how players work and what's happening in their minds and do it enough, <laughs> you can come up with a decent game. All right. So let's talk about your Kickstarter. All right. We've already talked about, um, you know, briefly, 2,300 backers, $135,000, which is incredible. But at the same time, you're making a game that may be super expensive to manufacture. So, you know, uh, but let's talk about like the Kickstarter. What was that experience? You were first time Kickstarters, first time designers, first time everything. And so kind of tell me your experience with that. It was crazy going in because, you know, we read all, we did a ton of research. We listened to podcasts like yours. We read like Jamie, everything, everything from Jamie Stegmeier and James Matthey as well. His blog is super helpful for Kickstarter creators and there's Facebook groups for Kickstarter creators. So there's, we did a massive amount of research going into the Kickstarter. But, you know, one of the things they say is um, if you're a first time creator, don't expect to get more than like. 300 if you're lucky and they also said you need to have a massive mailing list built up of people who you know are going to buy your game on day one and you get that by going to conventions and having people play your game and then hopefully they love it and they want to buy it and own it ours is a one-time experience <laughs> so <laughs> most of our playtesters actually a lot of our playtesters did end up buying because they wanted to give it to other people which was amazing or they wanted to have it and host it but we didn't know that at the time so we were just like we don't, we don't have that that you're supposed to have. And there's no way we're going to be able to get that uh, with just the nature of our game. So, you know, we, we clicked launch and we weren't sure who was going to buy this game, if anyone. Um, and then it was amazing. Our very first backer, Craig Corliss, is someone we had never met. Like, I, I just, I called Ariel. I was like, we already have a backer. It was like five minutes later and someone had backed it. It was so exciting. We funded in 14 hours on the oh. first day. Um, and it was, I was like Sorry. sitting at my computer at midnight, just being like, oh my God, we only need three more backers and we're funded. <laughs> um, so it was, it was phenomenal. And then, I mean, it, it took over our entire life. Yeah. Uh, we, we really, really are so grateful and so appreciative of every single backer that we, that we have. Um, so we sent a thank you note to every single backer. We responded to every single comment that came in. And we just were basically never off the computer <laughs> the entire time. And then also another thing, you know, a lot of the Kickstarter prep talks about your marketing budget. Our marketing budget was $0. Yeah. We did not pay any money 
for ads. It just wasn't something we could do. So we did a tremendous focus on PR and getting you know, anyone who might possibly be interested in covering this Kickstarter uh, interested. So we, you know, uh, we reached out with personalized uh, emails and letters and whatever we could do to anyone we could think of uh, to cover the game. Uh, reviewers, we ended up getting like 16 different reviewers to cover the game. And that was amazing, too, because there were people out there uh, like Joel Eddy at Drive Through Review or uh, the team over at Board Game Replay or uh, Brian at Cloak and Meeple. Um, who really, they didn't just review the game and, and give us a great review. Joel, Eddie, his was the first one to come in and he loved the game and we were like crying. <laughs> it was amazing to see like, okay, so, you know, we had playtesters who we didn't know, but they still like dealt with us face to face. And so to kind of send a box out and have uh, all the people we sent it out to come back with this overwhelming positive response was so magical um and then they really they got out there in the community too and you know joel posted on reddit and we were the number two board game on reddit the day that we launched so having support like that and then also as it kind of started to snowball and more and more people were coming onto the campaign and getting interested some outlets that we had reached out to before before we launched and they had just ignored us then they, we reached out again we were like hey look it's doing really well are you sure you don't want to do something and they were like oh okay yeah no we'll cover it and, and I'm gonna jump in here because I think a point that you just made was important we came we made prototypes and started reaching out to people well before the right. campaign um, yeah. so that people had time to review the game before we launched the Kickstarter. And we actually ended up pushing the launch of the Kickstarter back a couple weeks to allow for more people to play and have their reviews so that we could have those reviews on the site. And I think that made a really big difference in terms of getting backers that we didn't know because it was, you know, first of all, the fans of the reviewers, but also when people went to our Kickstarter, they could see that it had been played by all of these, you know, board game people and escape room people and that they liked it. Yeah. Yeah, especially as first-time game designers, I think having that credibility is so important. Um, and then Arielle put together, you know, a beautifully designed page. This is where her her skills shine of uh, Photoshop and everything like that. And our amazing artist Gage Ullman, um, he also did some of the artwork for the page. So even though we were first-time game designers, we wanted to make sure that it looked as professional and polished as possible to say, yes, you can trust us with your money. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, okay, so help me understand this this next part of the, the story, the timeline. So your Kickstarter funds, you deliver the game, everything's going great, and then Mattel gets involved, right? Mattel, like the Mattel, like the bazillion-dollar company Mattel that makes all sorts of really cool <laughs> toys and whatnot. How in the world did that happen? How did you get your game licensed by them? Well, one of the guys on our on our now our team, Brian Yu was a backer, and I don't remember what number he was, um, <laughs> but he was a backer, and we also did have a connection. You know, it's a friend who helped introduce us to oh, actually a bunch of different toy companies, including Mattel. So those two things got us in for a playtest at Mattel, and this was before we delivered the game. Okay. So we actually only delivered the game uh, last month. What month is it? No, ago? we delivered in August. In August. I don't know what month it is is the problem. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you um, had a baby. Things blur together. <laughs> yes, it really does. So those two things got us in for a playtest at Mattel. And, and these, you know, these guys had played the other games because even though we were the first kicks, um, escape room game to market, we were certainly not the first one on the shelves. Yeah. So by that point, a few of the other games had come out. The people at Mattel had played them. They played our game and they said that they thought it was the best and that they really, really loved it and that they wanted, you know, they wanted to have it as part of their adult game division, which is not, which is a division at Mattel that is growing and that they've put together this really amazing team for our, and I don't know if we know everyone on it, but the people who are working on our game are just so incredibly creative. They're all gamers. Um, They, you know, have been up brian has been up for the spiel de char or one one i think he won no he's a winner yeah (laughs) Um, and they're like they're multi-talented uh nick hayes is also on our team he can do like anything he's like an engineer artist game designer who can you know and it's amazing because 
they still, even though they are so accomplished and awesome, they still have us down to look at the samples and give notes. And they, they're really respectful of us as creators. And it's, I don't know, it's been really great working with them. Yeah, yeah um, I think people kind of picture Mattel as this like huge conglomeration that just would like take your game from you and run away and never talk to you again. Um, and they could not have been more amazing in terms of just every step of the way being like, we have to change this because of toy rules and, you know, things, small things like, oh, your game comes with a pen. We're going to make it a pencil because toys come with pencils. Um, so you know, but just every, every single change. And there's not many, but saying like, we need to change this. And it's like, it's so great to talk it through with them. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm so happy for both of you. And just it's, I love it when people find this kind of success, when they make a great product that people love, and then it gets the opportunity to be on the tables of a whole lot more people. It's just a really, really cool thing. Uh, and so, yeah, this has just been incredible. Any any advice, any kind of closing thoughts for somebody that maybe is thinking about making one of these games or maybe never thought about it until right now today and they heard this podcast and like, I can make one of those. Like, what advice would you give to those folks? Well, definitely make it. I mean, if it's your passion, you should do it. Um, and also, I want more games to play. Um, <laughs> right. But it's what Juliana said, you know, play test a lot, play a lot so that you know all the different types of puzzles and you know what's out there so you don't make the same thing again because with one-time play experiences, you want yours to be different from everything else. It should be unique. And narrative is important, just as important as puzzles. What else? What else would we say, Juliana? Uh, Other advice, I mean, I would say also just do your research, certainly to anyone thinking of running a Kickstarter for any sort of game, The Kickstarter community has really done so much to kind of help everyone and show everyone the tools that you need to success. And simple things like don't launch on a Saturday because people aren't at their computers. They're out playing and doing fun things. So, you know, launch between Tuesday and Thursday. Those are the best days to launch. So just I think if you really do a massive amount of preparation and uh, all the research, your chances of success are going to be much higher. Yeah. Any kind of closing thoughts as far as escape room games specifically, like as far as never use this kind of a lock because it doesn't work or any, anything. Kind oh, of like that. I do have one. Yeah, totally. No red herrings. Okay. Oh yes. Mm. Everyone who actually is an enthusiast hates red herrings, but some designers think it's cool to put them in because they think like, Oh, it's so tricky. No one's going to get it. Cause mm-hmm. I've got all this false information. Like don't, don't do that to your players. Right. Make a great game. Don't try to be too clever. Yeah, and don't, don't make a fair game. Right. A red herring is not fair because players are spending time focusing on things that they should not be focusing on. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I've learned a lot today. Really appreciate your time. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about tips and tricks for productive co-designing, what it looks like to work together with somebody else and get things done. And so I'm excited to kind of hear y'all's process and how you uh, managed to, to work together and create an incredible game. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on. Thank, thank you, you so thanks much. Thanks for having us. Fun. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?